Welcome to Ogle of Nanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollaghan Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. To our first supplemental podcast episode. A new experiment. Oh yes, so we hope it works and if not it might explode. <laughs> but in the revisit to the Tales of Ethlu episode that we've just done, you probably noticed that we referred, well once or twice, Sub- a bit subtly, to a couple of extra folk tales that we thought were really relevant to the main story of Ethlu and the birth of Lou. In this little supplemental episode, we will be going through one of those stories, which is the story of Ellen Gow the Swordsmith and the Cow Glasgana, which comes from Jeremiah Curtin's Hero Tales of Ireland. And a very interesting man Jeremiah Curtin was. Oh, he, absolutely. He collected quite a lot of stories in Ireland during the last few years of the 19th century. Yeah, but he took a very broad perspective to it. He was essentially an ethnologist, anthropologist, absolutely, as well as a folklorist. Now, he wasn't a linguist, mm-hmm. which is possibly why he doesn't necessarily come into yeah, And yet he's supposed country. to have spoken... 70 languages. I know, yeah, just not Irish, unfortunately. Well, he, he did have Irish, but according to Douglas Hyde, he didn't quite know all the different dialects. <laughs> but an interesting man, and I think one ahead of his time. We're really revising, I suppose, what we can get out of the stuff that he collected. And it's extraordinary just how closely tied these oral tales are to our literary ones. And how how useful they are. Oh, you can time. very much tell that they are oral retellings. Mm. Uh, they've got all the repeats that you could expect in an oral oh, yeah. tale. And you can even feel as if they're episodic. Mm. This evening, I'm going to tell you this bit, and mm. then you almost get the story so far. Yes. And you get these repeating sections that allow the audience to relatch into the story. Exactly, yeah. So to a storyteller, they are definitely of oral telling. They're oh, not, yeah. And they're really rich. Oh, they're wonderful. So let's wonderful. start out on this one. Yes. Now, our story begins when the king on the wave decides to visit the king of Spain. While he was there, the king of Spain was bewailing the fact that, oh, if, if I was a rich man like you, you know, if only I just had something special. And the king on the wave says, well, what is it you lack? Butter, said the king of Spain. <laughs> I haven't got much butter. Now, I'd be a really rich man if I had a load of butter. So the king on the wave said, well, look, very well, I'll send you a really special cow, the Glasgow. Her milk is so rich, it's all butter. <laughs> The king under wave went back. He sure enough, he sent the cow with a message, uh, and the message was: just make sure you keep the cow sweet. Mm. Give her everything she wants, and whatever you do, don't get in the way of where she's going. Just follow her around all the time and keep an eye on her, and then you'll have enough butter. Well, the king of Spain soon found he was swimming in butter. And what's more, it was very, very good butter. And the cow became famous. But the king of Spain took great care of the cow and to make sure she was guarded all the time. He came up with a very good scheme for this. <laughs> now, the king of Spain had a daughter. I'm afraid she doesn't even have a name. She's just a daughter. And he offered the cow as her dowry. Now, he had a really good plan for keeping his daughter and the cow 
and the dowry <laughs> because he agreed that any man who would serve him seven years would be able to keep the cow. Now, the problem was that the cow just couldn't be followed. It moved too fast. And so champion after champion failed and lost their heads. Uh, the king said that if they couldn't keep up with her, their heads would be off the same night and there was a row of heads on spikes to prove it. Sure. Yet this cow would go 60 miles a day, it said. So he got to keep the cow, his daughter, and got care of the cow and paid no wages whatsoever. Well, if we can just pause the story for a moment and have a look at some of the things that have come up in that first section. The first thing that really jumps out at me is that it sounds like the setup for your classic European folk <laughs> tale, is. doesn't it? The bride offered with impossible conditions. Yeah. The princess of the glass mountain and loads of others. Mm. Basically, the king wants to keep his daughter, but he has to offer her on the market, as it were. Yeah. And so he offers ridiculous, impossible conditions. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting is that, that the earliest version of that I can find is, in fact, the prince who's locked up in a tower. Mm -hmm. And that's the ancient Egyptian folktale, the dog, the snake and the crocodile, mm -hmm. where the, the king is so afraid that his son, something's going to happen to him because there's some sort of prediction that he'll be killed by either a snake a crocodile or a dog mm -hmm. and he just won't let him out yeah, yeah. until some princess comes along and basically takes control and, and rescues him Which unfortunately great, yeah. the story's not finished it's such a pity but yeah. you know it's, well, it's not finished the, the yeah. whole of the text isn't available yeah. it is finished obviously yeah. <laughs> or someone finished it sometime but, yeah, but there, there yeah. is we don't have the whole of the such text a shame, nowadays it's gorgeous. but he's rescued from the dog and he's rescued from the I think it's the snake mm -hmm. yeah. so it's very likely he got he the got princess got... rescued him from the crocodile as yeah. well and they lived happily yeah. ever after well exactly and in folktale terms Terms, once something is set up as being obviously impossible, that then sets up the hero who can come along and do it. Or, in fact, the earliest version of the heroine. That's yeah, why I like that. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's a good one. It's not just a folktale motif. I mean, this business of the either the riddle to win the daughter or the impossible challenges, as well as happening in something like Mither and Aideen, where Earth has to be moved in order for Aideen to be bought. You also get it in The Merchant of Venice, yeah, where yeah, yeah. Portia has these three caskets of gold, silver and lead, and each one has a riddle on it. Uh, and that's where we get all, all the, the glitters. It's not, not gold, as often you have heard that told. <laughs> and of course, the I think the upshot of that is that the suitor has to pick the least valuable one. Mm -hmm. That you comes know. right down to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yes, with the carpenter's cup. Oh no, that's the, the, um, oh, no, the, last, the last crusade. crusade. Sorry. Yes. Indiana Jones and the last crusade. That's it, yeah. <laughs> so that's how big and strong a motif this is. <laughs> yeah, you have to do the impossible. Yeah. It's one of the basic aspects of folktale. Yeah. The other thing that I think interests me is King Underway. Now, mm. surely he has quite close connections to Balor himself. Yeah, and I think that we probably touched on this in the original episode. And our update as well. And now, as well as, of course, having the daughter who has to be one, this is King Underwave, so it's a Fa'vura. It's from under the sea. It could be in Deich. It could be Tethra. It's very archetypally It's Fa'vura. just been switched over yeah. to the King of Spain. Yes, exactly. And in fact, in this, I think that the distinction between the King Underwave and the King of Spain is kind of arbitrary. Mm, it you certainly know, seems like it. Yeah. And that does make me wonder, if we have this king under wave who seems such a good candidate for the other world king in this story, 
why do we need a king of Spain? And why Spain, for goodness sake? <laughs> well, I suppose, first and foremost, Spain is just out there. It's the exotic outlanders. Mm. A bit like the Lachlanig in the north. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're always the ones out there or the ones from over there. Yeah, and I think we've, we have discussed this when we've discussed things like the Fulvera and the idea of the Norsemen. It's not always historically linked to Vikings mm-hmm. or whatever, but they are a foreign people mm-hmm. that we would have been familiar with at the time. That's right. And they're quite aware that they are a foreign people who mm. actually exist out there. Exactly. It's a bit like that. If you've never been to Moscow, does it exist? Yes. Yeah. And I, I do wonder with this story, it's very clearly and definitely a Munster story. It's a Kirkuquina story, in fact. And I wonder whether if you're in the south of Ireland, you're just more used to knowing that the Spanish are a foreign people rather than knowing that the Norse are a foreign people. I don't know whether there's anything to that. In the earlier textual sources, there is this idea of the Lucklinic as these pirates, essentially. So you know. the Spanish could easily be seen yeah. as pirates. Yeah. It's difficult because the Spanish weren't always enemies. No, exactly. And particularly when we're dealing with Irish consciousness right up to the end of the 19th century, mm-hmm. which is where this story comes from, the Spanish are most often allies. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that... If the English were fighting them, then obviously they were our allies. But also they were a major friend. But they were also a major Catholic power in Europe. And there was a lot of commerce and diplomacy, I suppose, between Ireland and Spain, particularly in terms of trying to get power back from all the two you're throwing after the flight of the Earls. Oh yeah. I mean even before the flight of the Earls who went right across Spain and into Italy and all over Europe, of course you had the Spanish Armada who weren't exactly defeated by the English, they were more defeated by the weather. <laughs> but a lot of them ended up washed up on the on the shores of Ireland. On the West Coast. On the West Coast, including, yeah. of course, Francesco de Cuellar, up in Sligo, who was sheltered by one of the O'Rourke's, who was later executed for having sheltered an enemy of the, mm. the British Empire. But back to this swordsmith and the cow. And this is where the story really starts. Yeah. Well, there was a famous smith in Cluncha, three miles north of Fintra, which is which now is, called... That's Ventry, which is down Dingle Peninsula, place I know where. Now, his name was Ellen Gow, and any young hero wanting a sword went straight to him. No one else worth going to. Now, Ellen Gow had a dream, and for three nights running, he dreamt the same thing. He dreamt of a wonderful cow. Seems that he had heard of this cow, and so he decided that this was a sign that he should go and get her. So off he went to Tremor to the King of Munster and said, please, can I have a boat? <laughs> Since the king was very fond of Ellangau, and after all, he made these wonderful swords for him and his men, he gave him a boat. Well, Ellangau filled it with provisions for a year and a day, although I love the way in the text it says a day and a year. Yeah. <laughs> and off he set sail for Spain all by himself. Now, he let the wind guide the ship. And it brought him straight to the harbour of the province where the king's castle was. Now, he secured the ship carefully, very carefully. It goes into a great deal of detail about this. And then set off to explore. Well, he met no one until late in the day. And there he came upon a beautiful castle. And outside, the four champions expertly practising feats of arms. In fact, they're so good, it says, that flashes of light came from their swords. Well, sensibly, he went the other way for a bit. (laughs) But nearby, he found a cottage. And in the cottage was a very old man who invited him in and offered him food. Now, this was no ordinary food. (laughs) Going to a chest, he took out a cloth which he spread on a table, and at that moment there came upon it food for a king or a champion. Ellen Gow had never seen a better dinner in Ireland. <laughs> Although slightly churlish, she says, you didn't need to do that. I had plenty of food in the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably a good 
point to just stop again yeah. very briefly. Yeah. Who is this Ellen Gow? Well, it's a very curious name, and what leapt out at me about it is that this Ellen part seems to come down from Ethlin, who, of course, is central to the story of the birth of Lou, as we've oh, seen. Lou McEthlin. Exactly. That we have this thing we've discussed about how Lou is often called Lou McEthlin, and that McEthlin, that genitive case, would give us this connection to someone who has that name about him. The name's sort of been forgotten, it's just... It's, now it's connected, connected yeah and connected to, to this yeah character and then the gow part is gawa from smith and of course we have in the original birth of lou story we have both the lou we have the ethelin and then we even have god knew the smith mm-hmm. coming into it so it's like a contraction so, of the name exactly it's kind of has all of that just rolled up into one. I like also the, the care he takes over harbouring the boat, particularly. Yeah. It's, he's said to be as good as any three pilots, mm. even though he's on his own. Yeah. And there's so much description about the securing of the ship that yeah. I already mentioned. And I think it's that detail that tells us that these storytellers are that familiar with seafaring themselves. And very much like when we were looking at the Voyage of Brendan. Which is also from the same area. It is, it? yeah. It's that area, southwest Kerry, where they you just go, go you, live, you live with the sea. I mean, yeah. there's beautiful curraks that come from down there. The curragh racing. I know people who do curragh racing yeah. down in that part yeah. of the country. They're very sea crafty people. Absolutely. And of course, they're, they're connected with the life of the islands, with the Blaskets and the Skelligs and all the rest of it. And you have so, to be good down there. God, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're talking about the edge of the Atlantic. <laughs> they're not easy. They're not, they're certainly not. So I think that it shows something I like, which is that just familiarity and love of the craft that you need to live from the sea. Yeah. The other thing that comes up here straight away is that you've got another well-known folk motif, the magical provision of aid. Oh, yes. When he lays the cloth and the food is magically provided, Mm. that turns up all over the world. Yeah. Funny enough, just the other day, I came across uh, another story of Anansi, the Mm. spider. Well, this one comes from Africa. Anansi sets off on the sea because he's starving, comes to an island, and there he meets an old man Mm -hmm. who takes out a pot. And the pot magically produces food. Oh, yeah. And he gives it to Anansi to take back to his people mm-hmm. and his family to share with them all. But, of course, being Anansi, he keeps it all to himself. <laughs> yes. And his wife gets hold of the pot and uh, washes it, which is the one thing you mustn't do with the oh, pot. Yeah. So it stops working. Mm. Anansi goes back to the old man, demands more. The old man gives him a stick. And, of course, the stick ends up taking him around the forest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although in one version I came across, it's his wife who gets chased around with the stick. But Wonderful. that's just nasty. Yes, exactly, exactly. But it's the same basic story. Mm. And there can be no historical connection between the two stories at no, all. No, no. Um, and it's obviously just such a strong motif. But what it does tell us is that this old man is going to be the one who's going to be able to provide uh, magical advice and aid. Yes, yes, which is the really important thing and what he's going to need in order to succeed in this. So, what about the old man? Do you think he's a type of Grover? Well, I, I, Our hairy hermit. Yeah, in, in, I mean, Rob. he's certainly fulfilling the same role. He's the one who kind of welcomes you to the strange land. Tells you what's going on. Exactly, yeah. Has that information. And I also get the sense that he comes across as a, something of a veteran. Uh-huh. He's the one who knows how things work the around guide. here. Ellingau tells the old man why he's come to Spain. Now, the old man immediately warns of the extreme difficulty of the task before him. However... Since he's heard of this famous myth, mm. he thinks that if anyone's got a chance of succeeding, Ellingal has. But he has to tell him that hundreds, indeed thousands, have tried and they've all failed, <laughs> losing their lives. Mm-hmm. Because nobody can keep up with the cow. She'll travel 60 miles a day or more. Mm. And if any 
uh, cowherd, any of these champions who turn cowherd for the day, or for the seven years, return without the cow for even one day of the seven-year term, yeah. they'll be beheaded yeah. immediately. And all their heads are on spikes outside the castle to prove it. Exactly. Uh, he advises that what's really needed for swiftness, and Ellingau says he's got no fear of losing the cow. Mm. And in fact, the old man says, well, with that attitude, you might actually succeed. <laughs> yes. So Ellingau goes off to the king. And the king asked an interesting thing. Is He asked her, and is it in combat or peace that you want to get her? Ah, it's in peace, says Ellingau. Well, you can try it with swords or you can try it with herding, whichever you wish. We'll try the herding, said <laughs> Ellingau. The king gives him the task of following the cow for seven years, as we said, but before he sends him out, he shows him the rows of severed heads <clears> and spikes before they actually make the contract between yeah. them. Now, it's a tough job. And Ellingau nearly gives up after the first day. He's really, really exhausted chasing this cow around. But he gives himself a bit of a talking to and says... <clears throat> Life is sweet, I'm not going to fail. Mm. And he doesn't. And through careful watching and swift digging, he succeeds. And at the end of seven years, he comes back to claim the cow. Now, the king gives him the cow, but warns, now she's yours, not mine. But if she comes back here again, don't have any eye after her, you're not get her. Mm. So, uh, Ellingau ties up the cow. Now, a lot is made of how he ties up the cow and he's allowed to tie it the way he thinks it should be done. Mm. Well, it obviously works. And he brings her to the ship, returns with her to Ireland. But now he's got to chase the cow around every day forever. Mm. And he has to give up sword making in order to look after the cow. <laughs> well, so now we have the story of how this smith, Ellingau, got this wondrous cow, the glass gannock in this instance. And when we were looking at the initial story of the birth of Lou, we did comment on how the cow belongs to Goifnu, the smith. But there's, <laughs> it, there's no real sense of why that should be. No, no. I mean, it, why does a smith own a cow? Yeah. They're, they're, it's just, that's it. It mm. belongs to Goifnu, yeah. and here it belongs to Ellingau. Yeah, although but at least now we know now how, how he got, got it. It's almost as though the storyteller has gone, you know, that's a really odd question. We really need a bit of story to explain how the smith got the cow. Yeah. Smithcraft is a very magical thing, and the mm. cow, as we know, is absolutely central yeah. to the fertility of the land. Yeah. Maybe the magic of it was once connected, but mm. it's a bit obscure, isn't it? It is, yeah, and I don't think we're any closer, really, to, to knowing what that's about. It's just that we know we're not the first ones to ask the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I do find interesting is that here, Ellen is given the choice of peace or combat. And that she's very clear that he would rather a peaceful challenge and that he chooses herding over fighting. Yeah, but then, of course, he's a smith. He's not a warrior. He, that's right. He's a sword maker, mm. not a sword user. Mm. And he obviously has this the magic of patience yeah. and careful work. Yeah, yeah. You know, an observation. It's the craftsman's way. Now, possibly the most significant thing is that there's actually no mention whatsoever of the King of Spain's daughter. Yeah, she's fallen off the story a little bit, hasn't she? She was introduced a bit perfunctorily to say that for some reason the King of Spain is offering the cow as his daughter's dowry, even though he clearly doesn't want to part with either of them. But here, yeah, Ellen Gow, he he's come to take this challenge, which is set up as if it's a suitor's challenge mm. to win the king's daughter, but he clearly doesn't have any interest in that. Well, there you are. This is a story of how Govnu, or in this case Ellen Gow, got the cow. Yeah. That's yeah. his purpose. Yeah. 
Well, the next part of this story shifts focus. It deals with this character now called Kian. The new hero. A new hero. However... Both parts start yeah. with the same line. Yeah. Elingar was the best man in Ireland to make swords and all weapons for champions. His name was in all land. Mm. The storyteller is saying the story up till now. Yes. Uh, reminding that it was about Elingau. Absolutely. Now we're yeah. going to move on. The King of Munster had four sons, and the third from the oldest was Cian. Now, Cian, his big thing was swordcraft. He, he liked to play with swords. <laughs> and of course, he wanted the best possible sword, and that had to be one made by Elingau. Mm. No sword will please me, said Cian, unless while grasping the hilt with the blade pointed forward, I can bend the blade till its point touches my elbow on the upper side, and then let it spring back and bend it again till the point touches my elbow on the underside. <laughs> now, Cian was the third son, that means one beyond the heir and the spare, <laughs> and therefore free to seek his fortune. So he goes off to Elingau for the sword, but finds Elingau far too busy following the cow around, uh, of course, to prevent her returning to Spain. So Kian says, well, if I follow the cow for you, you could get busy making a sword for me? And Elengau agrees, because he really feels like making the sword, even though he knows it's a risk to leave the cow watch to somebody else. Well, the inevitable happens. Kian loses the cow. He sees her going too close to deep water at Derry Moor, that's near Tralee, mm -hmm. isn't it? And gets between her and the sea in order to turn her back. And, of course, that's the rule. You mustn't get between the cow and where she wants to go, mm. particularly, it seems, the sea. Absolutely. And what did she do but jump through the air like a bird? And then she went out through the sea and left him. <laughs> Love that bit. Ellingal is surprising. He takes it quite philosophically and doesn't blame Kian. Although Kian says, look, you can have my head. I lost your cow. Take my head in penance. Mm -hmm. When he won't accept this, Kian says that in that case, he will go to Spain, as long as he can take his new sword, <laughs> and he'll get the cow back. And he swears an oath to Elingau that he will get the cow. Elingau shrugs and goes, there's not much hope of that. Mm. Elingau tells Kian that he himself couldn't have got the cow without the advice of the old man in the cottage and mm. suggests that he follows the same plan. Kian, before he leaves, goes to his father and explains the situation, and of course he's on a bound to go, so he begs the ship and he's given the same one used by Elingau. And the same thing happens. He provisions it for a day and a year. He sails to Spain alone. He's a very good pilot. Mm. He safely secures the ship. Everything's the same. He sees the same castles, same four champions. It's identical. He meets the same old man. He explains his mission, gets the magic food, the warning and advice. This is where it starts getting different. The old man tells him that he will only get the cow by force of weapons. Mm. So off he goes to see the king and he demands the cow and the daughter. <laughs> Well, as expected, he beats the king's four best champions quite easily. And there's a lovely description of this. At late evening, he sprang with the strength of his limbs out of the joints of his bones and rose above them and swept the heads of the four before he touched the ground. <laughs> and after that, he comes back and the old man and Kian spent the night in three parts. The first part in eating and drinking, the second in the telling of tales and singing of songs, and the third part in sound sleep. Lovely. It is. It's, a, yeah. it's a, one of those wonderful storyteller conventional runs. Yeah. It's a really good one. It's lovely. And the old man tells him how once he'd been the champion of Spain, and when he grew too old, the king had gave him that house. So you're right, he's a veteran. Mm. Well, the next day, he kills not four, but uh, 1,200 men. <laughs> and another 1,200 on the third day. <clears throat> and on the final day, he says, well, look, just send me a whole army. <laughs> 
king does that and he wipes them all out. So he goes back to the old man and the old man says, kind of wryly, I think, said the old man, that you have the last of his forces down now. <laughs> but what you've done so far is nothing to the task that lies before you. And that's a good dun, place dun, to stop. Dun. <laughs> End of the next episode. <laughs> Well, this next task is not to kill some fantastical ogre, no. It's to eat all the butter in the whole land. <laughs> Presumably there's a load of butter because of the cow. Yeah. No problem. The old man gives him a magic biscuit. <laughs> and apparently, if he puts the butter on this biscuit and eats that, it will cause all the rest of the butter in the storehouse to disappear. Right. At least I presume that's how it works, not just <laughs> piling butter onto the biscuit well, endlessly. one would assume that if he didn't have a magic biscuit, that's what he would have to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or he'd just have to eat it by the spoonful. Yuck, that's revolting. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, the next task, once he's completed that, his next task is to tan all the hides in Spain in four hours. Well... He manages that as well. He has the help of a piece of magic leather mm. given him by the old man. And apparently it seems to be that if he touches any other piece of leather, it will then immediately be tanned. Mm. Now, the final task, I think, is the best. <laughs> this one is to keep a hurly ball in the air for two and a half hours. <laughs> now, it gets better. <laughs> because he has to do this in public, mm -hmm. outside the tower where the princess is imprisoned in front of her and what's more watched by the king and the other champions are all allowed to join in and see if they can do it any better stop giggling <laughs> well fortunately he succeeds i'm trying to keep a straight face as well he succeeds because he's using an experienced hurley which is led to him by the old man <laughs> The princess is extremely impressed and she says that, ooh, nobody's done that or anything like that before. And then she kisses him. <laughs> Only then. <laughs> well, I think she kisses him first and then tells him he's done something that nobody else has ever done. <laughs> Kean turns around and says, well, I've won the daughter and the Glasganic from you now. You have said the king and they're both yours and I give them with all my heart. You've earned them well and done what no other man can do. <laughs> and I'll give you one half of the kingdom till my death. And after that, you can have the lot. <laughs> I think we better stop there. Oh, yeah. I need a breath. Well, I love the challenge of getting all the butter <laughs> in the country onto one biscuit. It, it, and eat it as well. Yeah. But it reminds me of, a, of one of my favourite stories that I tell, which is called The Ship That Sailed on Land. Mm. And in that story, you've got four... I do it as the original superhero story, yeah. because you've got a hungry man and thirsty man mm -hmm. who eat all the food and drink in the yeah. palace. And then there's strong woman and woman who blows the clouds. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing. You've got somebody who is gifted at doing these particular yes. things. And it's to win the princess and yeah. the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, Although it's often in that kind of story I'm thinking about that's similar pattern in the... Uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, it's the hero has servants who each have that well, specific that's what that is. I tell the thing. superheroes, yeah, but yeah. they are in fact his servants. Yes, yeah. yes it's the same mm. story. Mm. I forgot, I've changed it so that yeah, they're yeah. friends. So because... that it's more egalitarian. Without having to look 
if you like, outside of Ireland. This is also very reminiscent of that challenge that the Dagda is given by the Fuvara, because, of course, the Fuvara are trying to get him to abuse the laws mm-hmm. of hospitality, and they fail in that. But it is this challenge of feeding somebody, feeding somebody more than death. they possibly can. Exactly. With the Dagda, it's porridge. With poor Keen, it's butter. I mean, it actually makes me feel physically <laughs> ill to think yeah, about some biscuits. Oh, I wonder if it was digestive or a cracker. <laughs> Well, then there's the second task of tanning all the hides in Spain in four hours. Mm. Again, I think there's a connection here, particularly the first task being butter, and now we've got tanning. These are cattle-based products, is to do a cattle wealth. We've We've commented before that leatherworking is really important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've kind of wondered about it because... There is a lot of status tied up in things like harness and Saddle saddling. Bakers. Yeah, exactly. That If that is very ornamented, then it's a high status thing. I don't know what the older uh, social status would have been, but it could be that if you're dependent on the wealth of your cattle, then having a really good tanner and uh, harness maker is part of the wealth, the status that goes along with being a cattle lord. If you like. I, I, it seems quite logical. It seems logical. I just don't know whether mm. we've got kind of legal precedent from the older mm. texts. Well, the other thing that strikes me is, have we got a garbled representation of craft secrets? Mm, I mean, it's it's always a possibility. And again, when, whenever we're talking about the craftsman and, and Smithcraft in particular, we do wonder about this business of new technologies and craft secrets. And even that business where what Kean wants is a steel sword. He doesn't mm-hmm. want an old clunky iron sword. He wants a, a shiny new type. And with this business of tanning, I mean, tanning, one of its features is that it takes a long time. It's like mm-hmm. curing meat or it's like maturing cheese. There's just... In real life, there is no shortcut. And yet what Keen has given is specifically a shortcut. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an interesting contrast between Ellen Gao, who we just said had to demonstrate his patience and being able to do things the right way over yes, a long the slow period of way, time. Didn't he? The seven-year way of getting the car. Exactly. He took the peaceful, the herding way, which takes patience and consistency and all those sort of craft-based skills. Kean has taken the warrior's way. So what he needs... Cutting the Gordian knot. Yeah, he needs shortcuts. And that's exactly what the the old man, the veteran, has shown him all the shortcuts. So I think there's another nice little parallel between these it's two neat. parts of story. Yeah. And I suppose we ought to go back and talk about this Hurley challenge <laughs> for two and a half hours. What? I don't mean we're going to talk for two and a half no, hours. No, 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 no. But that he, was, he kept it up. <laughs> For two and a half hours? The detail that you left out is that the kind of (laughs) denouement of this extraordinary skill where he has to repetitively use a long wooden object for two and a half hours and presumably has to keep a rhythm, that what he does in the end is he flings the hurly ball through the window of the tower where the princess is. And she catches it, doesn't Mm -hmm. she? Yes. And that's when she goes, oh, that was good. (laughs) Nobody's done that before. I know. Yeah, it is a bit obvious when you well, start to think yeah, about it, isn't it? Yeah, I'm afraid so. But it just because it's obvious and hilarious doesn't mean that it's not relevant. Yeah, well, the thing is, he's shown his fertility mm. and his sexual prowess. In other words, he's a worthy son-in-law. Exactly, There yes. is something important here. Oh, definitely. That the other champions presumably couldn't do. Manage, yeah, exactly. And the point of this is that the daughter is going to have this wondrous child, yes. who in this story is called Cormac, 
who's clearly taken over Lou's role, yeah. but the tower is still there as it uh-huh. is in our original story. And that same sexual innuendo oh, yeah. is still there. Well, exactly. It is, as we've found with some of the other older Irish stories, that this demonstrable sexual technique is actually very important. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's it's not, even if it's euphemised, it's not It's not always particularly up. euphemized. No, no, exactly. The, the, the imagery is pretty obvious. Oh, it, it definitely is. In a lot of traditional societies, until relatively recently, a young couple would be sexually active for quite a long time before there was any thought of marriage. Mm-hmm. And this was seen as the right way to go about it. Quite a lot of it in Thomas Hardy's work. Oh, yeah, it's quite, this know, is what I mean, it's quite natural and normal. Exactly, yeah. And it's and much more natural than normal than banning sex before marriage. No, we shouldn't be giggling. It's just so funny. It is. So, Kian's got the girl and he's got the cow. But he doesn't go home. He stays in Spain for a while. Mm -hmm. And Kian and the king's daughter get married and they have a fair son. And if the sun shone on any child, it shone on that one. Mm -hmm. The boy was called Cormac after Kian's father, Cormac McCart. Now, Kian stays till the boy is 18 months, and then he thinks he really ought to go and take <laughs> the cow back to Ellingau. Mm-hmm. So off he goes. And back in Ireland, he's just about to meet up with Ellingau, and instead he meets up with a band of robbers. <clears throat> he loses his gold and the cow as a stake in a game he plays with the robbers. Mm. At the end of this, the robbers turn Kian into a stone pillar and the cow into an earth mound, and presumably they make off with the gold. Mm. Now, meanwhile, back in Spain, Kian's son Cormac is growing up. When he's around 18 years old, he hears his mother and grandfather discussing Kian's exceedingly long absence mm. and decides that he really ought to go and seek his father in this distant, exotic land of Ireland. <laughs> now, his mother is absolutely certain that Kian must be dead after 18 years, that he would have returned. Mm. But Cormac says, no, I'm going to find out my father's fate, dead or alive. And so as his mother can't prevent him from leaving, she gives him her blessing and a boat. Now, he's carried straight through the seas and straight to Str- Tremor. There's no waste of time describing yeah. what happens on the journey. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, he encounters the very same group of bandits that defeated his father. Sitting around waiting for 18 years. <laughs> he also enters into a game with them, and he too loses his stake. They win from him every piece of his 2,000 gold coins. Now, Cormac doesn't give up. And he said to himself, it's an old saying, never contradicted, that strength will get the upper hand of enchantment. He jumped then and caught two of the three robbers, one in each hand, and set them under his two knees. The third was coming to help the first two, but Cormac caught that one with his hand and held the three, kept them there and said, now I'm going to knock the heads off every man of you. (laughs) Well, when they heard that he was seeking his father, Kian, the robbers go, hang on, we know that one. Yeah, yeah, we can tell you where he is. And they beg for their lives off bring him the enchanted rod that they've used to turn him into a stone pillar Mm. and tell him how to restore his father and the cow. They also even offer to return the gold for some (laughs) inexplicable reason they've still got, unless it just means Kian's gold. Mm. Cormac responds by killing all three of the robbers. (laughs) He then takes the rod and frees his father. Now, Kian's a bit surprised and doesn't (laughs) recognise his son until he hears the whole story. Mm. Father! Son! Kian quickly uses the magic rod to restore the cow and is finally able to make good his promise and return the cow to Ellingau. That bit's done. Now, Ellen tells Kian that he's continued to forge swords all through the many years of Kian's absence and how the support of the King of Munster has made it all possible. Mm-hmm. Kian's delighted that his father has kept his promise and watched out for the smith. 
He promised me that, said Kim, before I left Ireland. I knew he'd help you. <laughs> oh, he did, said I now. <laughs> well, Kim then goes home to his father, who thought his third son dead those many years. Kim stays with his father for a month, then collects up all the robber's treasure, gives one half to his father, and returns to Spain with the rest. <laughs> and let's stop there. Yes. It's almost the end of the story. Mm-hmm. I love the description of Kian's son. Yes. You know, this fair child. Of course, he's yet another saviour child, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he is definitely taking Lou's role in this. Or Mungon. Or Mungon's even, if if we're comparing this to the birth of Lou specifically. Mm. I find it interesting that it is very deliberately connecting it to the line of Cormac McGarrett, Mm -hmm. Mm. who is the exemplar of the Equin dynasty. The Equin Mm -hmm. are those who who ascend from Cunkade Cossack, who you've got Cun, then his son Art, mm-hmm. then his son Cormac. Mm. So this is the ultimate founding yeah. Cormac MacArthur is the great the exemplar of the king, isn't he? Yes, he is. But again, unlike Lou, he's much more commonly imagined as a progenitor, a human ancestor, someone to whom you could trace your genealogy and that would give you legitimacy in terms of kingship. So it's kind of bringing it very much into the real world. The, the human world. As, yeah, yeah, exactly. World. Yeah. yeah, even though he's a legendary king. Exactly. But it's still that you would get people who claim this as their ancestral mm-hmm. uh, progenitor. Now, I like the Roberts game too, but what I want to know is, does Kian have any choice about playing the game or are he and his father both inveterate gamblers? It's kind of hard to know. There certainly seems to be this inevitability that if someone meets you on the road and challenges you to some kind of gambling, that for some reason you have to accept the challenge. Now, there's plenty of myths whereby a game is played, most notably between Mither and Yochid, in the Mm -hmm. game of Fiddle in order to win back Aideen, and that's a very specific ploy. But I don't know whether there's either some extra social obligation involved, or whether it's just that Kian and Cormac have this particular weakness. I don't know. Or if they lose each time is also pretty It's also interesting. Once again, you've got this repeated motif. Very much a storyteller's tale Mm. in that you've got the same episodes and repeat with new characters. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice, though. It is, but there's also this nice pattern where you, at the beginning, as we pointed out, you've got Ellen Gow winning the cow through peaceful means and then Kian winning the cow through violence. Here you've got Kian encountering the bandits in a kind of a peaceful way through this game. But then when it comes to Cormac's turn, he responds with violence. And yeah. I love the way that he effectively says you, you could always get more with a kind word and a piece of two by four than just a kind word. He's basically saying, well, yeah. I tried being nice, now I'm just going to cut all so, their heads off. Right, so the, the <laughs> question of is it honourable is really irrelevant here. Well, it's just what he's doing. I know, yeah. But it, that's what Kian did. Yeah. Now it's what Cormac's doing. Exactly, yeah. It's comic book violence. It is, right. I love the description. Yeah. one under each knee and then a third in his hand like, yeah. yeah it's good fun but also that he says I won't kill you if you tell me where they are and they yeah. go oh we'll tell you we'll tell you oh well I'm going to kill you anyway sorry <laughs> <laughs> and the last bit is probably more important is that the king of Munster has kept faith with Ellingau the truth of the king holds oh the fear of Flathavon is definitely yeah. consistent but I also think it's somewhat significant that we've got Cian turned into a stone pillar and the cow turned into this earthen mound The symbolism, if you like, is a bit straightforward in terms of male and female, 
But I think there's also an element whereby this is named as a specific place mm -hmm. within the story. I remember when I was reading it thinking, have it's... I been there? Because it's all around the Kirkagreena area. It's yeah, it almost Peninsula. feels like an home stone, doesn't it? It does. And there's a lot of them around there. It's one of the sort of places where you find a lot of those solitary pillar stones. So this pillar and mound. Mm. So I know it's so familiar yeah. to us in the landscape that yeah. you think... Now, which one is it? I remember reading previously about a pair of Owen pillars that are related to a cow because when she was so full of milk, she would pass between them and rub each pillar mm -hmm. because her belly was so big. So it has a, a Dianhianicus element. It does, yeah. I mean, we find that all the way through. I mean, again, the, the specifying of uh, Derry Moor as the deep water where the cat wanted to go and drink. Mm -hmm. It's all very specific. Location local. specific. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I always like that. So now we've just got the epilogue. Oh, yes. So eventually Ellingau grows old mm -hmm. and no longer able to run the 60 miles. And he gives the minding of the cow to Quail Nakrua, who obviously is a swift runner. Mm -hmm. Now, this cow would give milk to anyone who came to her and could fill any vessel. Mm. There is a story, so it's told, of how a woman tries to milk the cow into a sieve. Mm -hmm. The milk flows until the nearby river is white with milk. At this point, the cow kicks the old woman and kills her. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> now, Quail Nakura continues to mind the cow until one evening the inevitable happens. She goes to a place near Clincher where she likes to drink. Now, the young man sees this and thinks she's about to go into the sea like before and gets between her and the sea. Uh, at this point, vroom, she's off into the sea, straight over his head. Yeah. But this time he catches hold of her tail to pull her back. <laughs> mm. He's dragged into the ocean on all the way to Spain, hanging onto her tail. <laughs> the king's delighted to have her back, mm -hmm. as they were missing the batter in Spain. Of course. And that's where the story ends. <laughs> well, from that last little epilogue, as you put it, I find it interesting that they bring in this character called Quail Nakrua, in order to look after hand the cow. On, hand on the story. Basically. Exactly, yeah. And again, he seems to be chosen because he is the fastest man, so he can keep up with the cow. And this, of course, brings to mind Quilte Magronon, who's the name Quilte in synthetic etymology is related to the term quail, which means slender. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful false story about why Quilte is called Quilte, that he was very, very thin and standing beside... Uh, Smith's Forge and so he got very very hot and so he was quail thin and te hot mm. well that actually links the story he's the one who's standing by uh, yeah. the Smith's Forge yeah. and he goes oh you can have the cow now yeah although in fact uh, uh, linguistically speaking quilty just means swiftness mm -hmm. so it's this it's both ways it does it? doesn't it and that's the wonderful fun of the synthetic mm. etymology but what jumped out at me was the image of the milk turning the river white and we're down in Dingle and um, Dingle Peninsula and there's a woman who's putting milk into a river to turn it white that's exactly what Blathna does from Kuroi's mm. castle down the river Finglas in order to signal to Cuchulain that he could come in and elope with her yeah so it's a known local story it is another local story yeah, and it's yeah. another marker on the landscape that's why i think this is snuck yeah. in as like oh but it's also told that yeah it's very dindianica isn't it if you don't like that story yeah. try another one. one but there's also that connection with boand and the abuse of the well yes yeah um, and it almost has... not chinon no not chinon <laughs> not chinon but it does this thing of milking into a sieve has the similar imagery to those disabused 
obedient women, particularly the ones who leave a lid off a well, yeah, and then yeah. the well floods and cr- usually creates a lake or some quick thinking Which man I'm, chops off her arms oh and legs. And but it other really builds up that evidence that the cow is the fertility of the land, yeah. hence the earth mound. Yes. And if the land is abused, mm. the land becomes a wasteland. Exactly. And that, that ties up the glass Gannach, as she is in this story, glass Gowan, as we know her, and in her holy grail aspect of Moitura, we've got Bowen and the cow, who's also a river. We've got Ethlu, who's also Bowen, and the birth of Lou. It just, they really are so closely related, all yeah, these images. Yeah, and the, the goddess of yeah. sovereignty stories are actually about this, the land represented by the woman. Yes. So if you're going to have any of them, it's got to be Ethlu, not made. Yeah. Or what? what <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what the story... Link back to the well and the cheese. That's what that was about. Exactly, yeah. And that's, that's why it made killed by a piece of hard cheese. Yes, yeah. Very hard cheese. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Right. That's usually what you rant about, <laughs> isn't it? That's what we call the Mave rant. The Mave rant. <laughs> well, we ought to bring this to a conclusion. Yeah, well, I think we have covered maybe a lot of it already, but let's just draw together what we've been saying. Yeah, we ought to get our conversation back to Ethlu, since yeah. that was the subject of our original exploration. Yeah. Uh, perhaps particularly our original story, which is Baller on Tory Island, as told by Jeremiah Curtin. Yeah. Actually, in this story, Ellen Gow, Ethlu's never mentioned by name. Not by name, but what we've been looking at is the parallels in the story structure. Also, her name kind of crops up insofar as we've got this Ellen Gow and right at the beginning we talked about how that Ellen can come down from Ethlyn or Mock Ethlyn in the son of Ethlu. Mm. So there's ways in which she's there that close connection to the glass gown even though it's the glass yeah. gown and the this. fact that the daughter never has another name exactly yeah. it's just like everybody knows she's Ethelou so exactly. why bother yeah. and the smith gets the cow and Keen gets the girl mm. and if you think about it it's no further away from the original than your average TV adaptation yeah. <laughs> birth of Lou with added folktale goodness what you mean like F numbers with <laughs> instead of E numbers yeah yeah okay if you say so yeah full of F numbers <laughs> And curly sticks. Of course. <laughs> well, that's about it. That's the story. Yes, and that's our first experimentally supplemental episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it was interesting to look at a story that's so parallel to that Birth of Lou story, yet doesn't actually include Lou at all, <laughs> as it turns out. But it does give us more about Ethelyn than the Glasgowan or Glasgowan, as she is. Now, the next supplemental that we're going to bring to you is a story called The Queen of the Moving Wheel. Another Jeremiah Curtin. It's another Jeremiah Curtin. Story. Yeah. In that one, though, I think it points more towards that relationship between Ethlu and the Welsh Ariangoth. Mm, so, and the training of the young hero. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think it's going to be just as much fun. Yes, yeah. I hope so. No we hurry hope you sticks, enjoyed though. That. No hurry <laughs> Thank you for listening to Agalith Menegas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde of Bullocorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.